You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Stuart Kyo entitled Slow Rise, Sudden Fall, The Checkered Career of James Malone, King's Printer to James II. So, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm going to talk to you uh, about James Malone, a Jacobite, a printer. Uh, He died in 1721. I'm going to tell you a couple of things at the start uh, firstly, just would like to say that uh, I'm very happy to be here at the Tudor and Stuart History Early Conference. Um, I'm also very happy to be in speaking in NUI Galway because there's a, an uncle of mine who passed away in the early 1990s, uh, James Stewart. He was a native of Salt Hill and he um, was a lecturer in Celtic Studies in Copenhagen and in Stockholm. And he wrote a book. He was interested in Celtic Studies. He wrote a book called Boccaccio in the Blaskets is uh, research on how stories from Boccaccio's Decameron end up as uh, strong themes in religious, in folklore from the Blasket Islands. There we go. So back to, as the French would say, back to our onions and uh, Monsieur Malone. This is, uh, what I'm going to talk to you about James Malone is I'm going to tell you first the bad bits about what I don't know. I don't know when he was born. I think it's about 1650. I don't know who his parents were exactly. And, but I do know he's a, a Dubliner. And I'm going to t- uh, start at the end. Uh, this is his part of Dublin. What we'll probably be interested in is St. Odeon's, which is down here somewhere. And um, Dublin Castle, Castle Street. And this is where he lived, Skinner Road. So, um, firstly, the reason I talk about St. Odeon's is simply because on the 2nd of November, 1721, he was buried, as the parish register says, inside the church. And the inside the church, I think, is significant. Um, That is a picture of the part, the remaining part of the Malone tomb in St. Odeon's, um, C of I one, obviously, and um, that is a monument which was erected to the memory of John Malone, who was a, a Lord Mayor of Dublin, and um, his wife, uh, Elizabeth Pentonay. And they had a son, Edmund Malone, who was an older man. He was definitely a Roman Catholic, and he married a lady called uh, Margaret Usher. And uh, they had a number of children. There was, I'm thinking that... Mr. James Malone might have been, is probably related to these people um, because he was buried inside the church and he is a Malone. 
I'm thinking he might be a son of this William Malone who was living in High Street in 1644. But this is the... I can't, I can't shock Leopold von Ranke and say, it's done, it's a done deal, there's a link. I don't know there's a link, but I think it's probable. Uh, there's another very stylish tomb, uh, Spark Sedgrove, Sedgrave tomb in that, and one of the people on that particular tomb is a lady called Begnet Malone, who was wife of Sir Thaddy Duff. But anyway, that's that's back to... I think that's who he's related to. Um, his career really takes off with the Guild of St. Luke the Evangelist, which was founded in 1670. It's part of a big whole spate of the development of guilds in the city of Dublin um, after the Restoration, taking over control, I suppose, of the guilds and merchants and uh, government and commercial life of the city. Um, it was founded in 1670. It's one of 26, I think, total uh, guilds that were established. Not all at the same time, obviously. And James Malone was admit- admitted as a brother of the guild on the 4th of October, 1672. He's, m- he's a member of the guild from 1672 to 1719. There's a little bit, he's disenfranchised. He's a freeman of the city of Dublin. He's disenfranchised for obvious reasons, as we will uh, find out. That's the front of the get one of the records of the guild book in uh, that's from the National Library. The Guild of Saint uh, Luke the Evangelist was for cutlers, painter stainers, and stationers. Now it's a bit of a motley crew of people to collect, get together, and I think that partly uh, partly explains its lack of stellar success in the sense that it's trying to deal with a number of fairly unrelated activities. Um, but they're all in the same guild. This uh, I always like this bit is when you get a little bit of uh, clue about your, your target. There's a dispute between James Malone and his apprentice in 1678, Isaac Warriner. Um, and this document is that the page there on the left is basically saying the guild steps in and helps them resolve the matter. Uh, it just mentioned that Warner was living with in, the, in Malone's house for the last number of years. So he's, I think he's living above the premises, whatever the premises are. Uh, but he is uh, definitely um, uh, Malone's apprentice. Because the guild only starts in 1670, maybe he was a member of another guild and he does his apprenticeship, because I don't know anything about Malone's apprenticeship but I'm guessing he must be about 20. I don't know this could, uh, if people have information as to when you could become a free man or what age, I'd be, I'd be very grateful. What is really nice is the fact that, there you go, on the right-hand side, James Malone, that's his signature. Warrener's is down at the bottom. And uh, Warrener's father-in-law, Darby Dunn, is the guy in the middle. But it uh, seems to have been uh, resolved amicably. These are some of the places that James Malone would have known. As uh, Therese mentioned, the Tulsal. That was around the corner from Skinner Row where, and High Street where the Malones had originally lived. And that is uh, Essex Bridge. Uh, this is He becomes involved in the book trade. He's a stationer in the Guild. He comes up... I'm not going to give you every single you know twist and turn simply because it would take far too much time but it would be useful to say is that he ends up in a selling salesman capacity related to books and uh, articles and pamphlets in the 1670s, early 1680s. And 
as ever, one is always relying on previous scholarship and other scholars who work on similar things. This is Raymond Gillespie um, reading Ireland. He did a book. He did very extensive research on the Chester book trade because a lot of books imported into Ireland came via the port of Chester. And as you can see, halfway down the... Half, this is in cubic hundred. I'm a bit of a child of the metric system, so... But anyway, I decided, to, as being working in a bank, I decided to put in an Excel spreadsheet and tot it up. Um, so you see James Malone halfway down, importing quite a bit of, quite a weight of books uh, in the more important range of the people who are importing books. They are imported by weight at that stage, and they're often imported loose, which is why when you go into nice people's libraries, they had their nice uh, personalised book binding simply because you might buy the book loose. It's then bound with your cover rather than, as I say, hardback. So paperback, he was buying the paperback and then he had his own one. Own, that's, what, that's what basically what happened. So they're, they're, and of course, it's, it's better to import it without the cover, which is less weight. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the chronology because you'll hear most of it, but one of the most important scholars who worked on this area, obviously Mary Pollard, who did a dictionary of the members of the Dublin book trade. At some stage, he marries to Mrs. Malone. And Mrs. Malone is a lady called Mary Neville, and she's from Furness near Nace in Kildare. She's the daughter of Richard Neville, who's a high sheriff of uh, Kildare, She's also, uh, she's also a daughter of people called Usher, which I don't know whether they might have been related to the Malone Ushers previously mentioned. In any case, um, the son Richard, which would have been uh, James Malone's, uh, I think, brother-in-law, um, 1654 to 1720, he's MP for Kildare. You definitely think that Mary Neville is Protestant, very much. That's the sort of feel you get of it. And uh, Richard Neville is MP for Kildare in between, in, for the Irish House of Commons, 1695-1703. That is a nice pick. It's a former Guinness house. It was owned by the Guinnesses. It was built in the 1740s for an, a, a, another Richard Neville further down the family line, but it was owned by uh, the Guinnesses, and I think it was sold a couple of years ago. Uh, this is just a tiny little picture of a nice bookseller of the maybe... 18th century. Um, he does set up shop at some stage because he has a premises on Skinner Row. I don't know when that is. Um, but the sort of the standard stuff that they're selling as a Catholic or as a Protestant, chapbooks, song sheets, Catholic prayer books, and of course special orders, a bit like Amazon. You go into your local bookshop and order a title. This is back to, uh, just to remind you, Skinner Row is gone. You probably know if you went to Dublin, Jury's Inn, opposite Christchurch. It's Christchurch Place. So basically, the Jury's Inn side is the only side of Skinner Row, which is still left, I suppose. And if you look around the pub, which I think is the Castle Pub, just around the corner from Burdocks, actually, for his fish and chips, it's in a line. You could actually think the, 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 the line of the street would continue from Castle Street along Anyway, James Malone is lucky enough to be a Catholic when being a Catholic was good luck for your career. And I think the fact that he's related to, probably related to Malone's who had been 
patrician family in the city helps with the fact that in the James II's new charter to Dublin in 1687, Mr Malone is named as an alderman. And there you go, big J over in the corner. And we'll have another look at that uh, later on. But uh, there's a coat of arms of the various big wigs, aldermen, mayors, etc., city, uh, city fathers, and that is... James Malone, alderman, his arms appearing on the charter. Now, obviously, things start to change a little bit after the Glorious Revolution, 1688. And 1689, uh, March 1689, James II comes over to Ireland with money from Louis Fourteenth, And he is, um, there's the Jacobite regime, which basically lasts from March 1689 in Dublin, from James Malone's point of view, it ends with the Battle of the Boy. Now, it obviously continues with Limerick, and but as far as Malone is concerned, Battle of the Boy is where it all starts to go south. This is just a little picture from the French uh, site Gallica, from the big Bibliothèque Nationale. Um, that's uh, James on the left being welcomed to Saint-Germain-en-Laye by Louis XIV on the, on the right. Um, David Hayton, who worked it on, on the sort of, uh, has written about uh, this sort of period, talked about the fact that the Jacobites seem to have set up some sort of news service, printing uh, pamphlets, newsletters, gazettes, and uh, this is the sort of stuff I want to show you. This is a lovely one. They didn't, they always like to go for in for the long title. A relation of what most remarkably happened during the last campaign in Ireland betwixt His Majesty's army royal, they're the Jacobites, and the rebels, forces of the Prince of Orange. Printed for Alderman James Malone, bookseller in Skinner Row, 1689. This is significant for a number of reasons. Simply because that's, by the way, is what they call an imprint. The little piece down at the bottom, who it's printed by. Um... It says printed for, not printed by. So he is acting as some sort of publisher, but it may not, he may not have been printing it himself or his company may not have been printing it. So it's just in, in, to keep in mind. At this stage, one doesn't generally know the author of something. One might know the publisher and one might know the printer, but they are the three sort of people who might have been involved. Commissions probably are paid for by the James II government. What is interesting is that it's a, it's a successful, import, successful pamphlet. Narcissus Luttrell, who is the avid collector of pamphlets, buys it in London in April 1690. Now, there was a plan of the Jacobites to print Jacobite propaganda, proclamations of James II, and to ship them over to England. There are a couple of people who are caught arriving in Chester or arriving in Scotland with letters and with prints, and the instruction was to reprint them in England and distribute them. So this is one of the reasons why this pamphlet, for Malone, it's fame, and then very quickly, infamy, because his name is on it. And it cost, was bought 17th of April, and it cost 4p, 4d. I don't know whether that was good value or not, but anyway, it's a little book. The other one, called The Abhorrence, which declared its loyalty to the great, great King James, was printed in uh, Ireland as well. 
It's also very small down there, printed for Alderman James Malone bookseller in Skinner Row, same thing. The, the important thing about this is the fact that we know who wrote it. It's a bit of a polemical rag, to be honest, criticising William King and various Church of Ireland prelates who were supposed to be disloyal to James. They were disloyal to James because they were, William King admits later on, yes, I was sending messages to rebels up in the north to send to King William. So they were right about that. He was disloyal. Uh, but anyway... Yolden was a convert to Catholicism and it's one of the few pieces where you know at the time who wrote it, who printed it. Nice little picture. Anyway, that's Early English Books Online. Fantastic resource. Download as a PDF or a, a TIFF. In January 1690, this is the closest to get to glory in James Malone's um, story and uh, Along with his son, Richard Malone, he's named officially as the King's Printer, which is allowed, so he's allowed to print proclamations and that sort of thing. These are the triumvirate of government at the time. Jacobite Duke of Tyrconnell, Mr. Richard, Richard Talbot, James himself, and James's hated Secretary of State, John Drummond, Earl of Melfort. Uh, one of the other things which has come to mind, which is close to my own heart, is a document called the Jacobite Gazette. Most of the newsletters that came up really seem to be very much the sort of Williamite style which survive. That's what happened. They won, so their stuff survives. Jacobite ephemera doesn't survive, but one of the best sources of finding out about what happened in a particular period is if there was muck, it was thrown and it's partly stuck. And this was, it was chucked at the Jacobites. There is no public newsletter, nor Gazette, suffered to be in any coffee house, only the Dublin Gazette, which is a legend of their own composition, written by uh, Protestants in uh, London, saying, what a rag, Jacobite rag in Dublin. Everybody, th uh, many historians thought it was lost, but it was, I think, Donald Wing, 1950s, uh, great scholar. There you go. The Library Company of Philadelphia, one existing copy. Printed for Alderman James Malone. Printed to the King's Most Excellent Majesty and are to be sold at his shop in Skinner Row, 1690. So you can know, if it's Alderman Skinner, if it's Alderman James Malone, no King's printer, it's before January 1690. January 1690, King's printer, and then of course, by the time Battle of the Boyne, nothing more. This is James Malone as printer, King's printer. This is um, by the King declaration telling the officers in the Jacobite army to get back to your army posts. Uh, you can't really see it. It's printed for Alderman James Malone, printed the King's Majesty, 1689, sold also by Andrew Crook, who was the former King's printer who had lost his job. Um, and this is one of the, the last one, the last of the proclamations of James II from Dublin and the last thing printed for Malone. God save the King, 15th of June, just before the end. <clears throat> the abhorrence and the relation, those two pamphlets which Narcissus Luttrell buys, calendar of state papers of... Uh, James the, of William III, April 1690, just after Luttrell buys them, 
warrant issued by William's government to apprehend Mr. Poole, John Mullet, various people, for printing and publishing scandalous and seditious pamphlets. So these things are sent to England and they are reprinted, which is what the Jacobites wanted. But of course it wasn't very good for Malone because he had his name all over it. Uh, Nothing. From 1690 to 1696, he does not appear on the radar. I've not found any references to him. Pollard doesn't find it. Lying low. Maybe shut up shop, literally shut up shop on Skinner Row for a while. But in any case, no records. In 1696, the Guild of St. Luke has fallen out of love with James Malone and decides this is really the start of the movement towards the penal laws, which is 1695 in the Parliament in Dublin. And they said that they want to disenfranchise Mr. Malone because in the time of King James II in Ireland, he was a captain and commissioner of array under James II. This is the only source that says this. He seized Joseph Ray's printing press Maybe because they didn't have his own. The Jacobites didn't have their own. Maybe they did. And he has continued to sell popish prayer books. And as a papist, which didn't seem to have a problem when he joined the guild, did not take the required oaths to enter the guild. But of course, as a Catholic in 1672, he had been dispensed from that. So this is the sort of, they're throwing, finding a bit of mud to throw at him. It works because he struck off from as being a free man, uh, between 1698-1699, he struck off as being a full brother. He becomes a quarter brother. You can become a quarter brother. Catholics can only be quarter brothers in the guild. But he's reinstated in 1700. So he must have been, what happened, he must have been still, maybe he lied low, lay low. Uh, I, I'm not completely, I'm, I think there's some element of help from Maybe the Nevilles, his, his wife's family, good Protestants, good supporters of King William. Maybe they help him. I don't know. This is a good one. He really doesn't shy away from printing things that he really shouldn't. But the good news is he doesn't put his name on it anymore. The Memoirs of King James II was printed in London in 1703. And presumably, hot off the press, it comes over to Dublin and James, and James Malone and some of his business associates decide to print it. The London imprint, printed by whoever it was in London, is left as it is. I think James Malone has learned his lesson. I'm not putting my name on any of this stuff anymore. And, but he does get another, uh, a, probably a Catholic, John Brockus, who's a member of the Guild, to print it, who's probably young and naive and doesn't know the full... Uh, effect of what happened. Anyway, the London imprint is a war. And when Brockes is dragged into court to answer as to why, it did not alter the title page thereof because it was no new book. And because Malone desired him not to alter it. There's a surprise. (laughs) That it might sell the better, people having an opinion that books that are better printed in England than here. That's half the reason. The other half the reason is I'm not putting my name on it again. I think that's it. But in any case, the Irish House of Commons ordered a prosecution of, sorry, it should be J.M., and public burning of the book, which is interesting is his nephew, Richard, his nephew, Richard Neville, was an MP in that parliament, but there's only so much protection to the family one could offer. 
what is interesting is that of the original run of 500 copies which Malone and friends decided to produce, 12 were sent each to Limerick and Galway. So there might be one around here, knocking around here. 40 were left, and the rest were sold by James himself. That's not bad, actually. That's not bad. He must have made a lot of money. So when they decided to publicly burn, there were only 40 copies to burn. He's imprisoned in 1708-1709 for selling Popish prayer books. And he pays a fine. <clears throat> this is an interesting one, which is very far away from the printing world. The Charitable and Music Society, Musical Society was founded by Gregory Byrne and James Malone, and they used to meet at the Cross Keys Tavern near Christchurch. This really sounds like a bunch of friends shutting up shop and going, maybe going to the pub for a sing-song and poetry telling. Who knows, they may have even gone to Burdocks for chips afterwards. But anyway, um, <clears throat> this is from a poem called, an historical poem by a fellow called Lawrence White. His poems, he's not very well known, he's not much of a well-known poet, but his stuff was printed by a fellow called Luke Dowling, who was James Malone's apprentice. So Dowling is the person who takes over from Malone. But this is the, this is the, uh, this is the quotation from White's poem. To sit with jolly friends some nights, this is talking about Byrne, he fixed, where with his liquor, love and mirth he mixed. As number of people, Dowling, Parker, Eddington, Reed, I don't know, your, your bard made one, for so the fates decreed. There you might see old Alderman Malone, who could relate the feats of 41, 1641. I presume as in fixed, mixed, we're supposed to get Malone, which would rhyme, rhyme with 41. There sate his nephews, look at that, the Nevilles. That first name is definitely the Nevilles. So even if they sent their uncle to prison, even if they burnt his books... They're in the pub with him. There say his nephews, Neville's. The other people I don't know. If you look Whig, maybe a twig or tie would would have been the sort of poetic. Anyway, I don't know who those be. The, the Reeves. Reeves. That's good. Thank you. There are twigs, people called twig, but I don't know whether anyone on the on the you know in the Dublin city uh, because I think they're in the list of the Gold Guild of Saint Anne. So I don't know whether... Anyway, with papists, Tories and some honest Whigs. And there you go. Each night we shook off our domestic cares by Irish, English or Italian heirs. The most important thing about the char char Charitable and Musical Society is after Mr. Malone's demise, in 1740s, it sponsors the first public performance of Handel's Messiah. This is the later incarnation, but it stayed with the same, if you like, uh, ethos of being fairly Catholic-Protestant mix. Yet Alderman Malone hasn't forgotten his on which side he was on, and he's talking about 1641. He may have talked about, oh, my time as King's printer. Who knows? Anyway, I'm going to finish, finish there, uh, and here we have just a couple of nice pictures to finish off. Sorry, last one. Pew's occurrences, 17th of de 16th of December, 1718. He must have been a ripe old age, 60s or 70s. James Malone is resolved to give over his trade. And there was an auction of James Malone's stock bought by his former apprentice, Luke Downing, 
29th of January, 1790. And then back to our beginning, he's buried inside the church of St. Audion. There we go. Reference to Handel's Messiah. He survives. We've got a number of printings by him. I haven't found all the sort of uh, family history and church registers. There's a fair bit that I managed to get through. But I think he's a great survivor. And um, it's nice to have somebody like Luttrell File who finds the stuff. Fantastic reference for people as to finding a pamphlet, when it was bought, when it was dated and how much. Anyway, here are the pictures. This is the Malone crest from the Charter, and that is the Malone crest from the earlier Malone's... It's the same one. I don't know if it's the same branch, but I'm pretty sure it's the same family. It's the same crest, anyway. Uh, This is a recent appearance. This is a sermon. Amongst the other stuff that he printed when he was Alderman James Malone was sermons preached in the Roman Catholic interim in Christchurch when Christchurch went for about a year, went back to being Roman Catholic and then back to being Anglican. Adams, Sale House, 2015, printed for James Malone. I don't know who the library of Jerry Ty was. In any case, bookseller in Skinner Row, 700 euros sold. What was he paid in? I think he was paid in gun money, which meant that he probably didn't make that much money. This is uh, gun money half crown from six, October 1689. This is what I've always wanted to say. It's in the author's collection. Very nice portrait. Very good quality, high quality uh, portrait of, uh, of James. This is a picture, for a close-up of the Charter of 1687. It's a facsimile in the National Library of Ireland. You can see Jacobus Secundus de Grazia and the Ebernia at Frankie at Rex. You know, the sort of... And that is another survivor. I doffed my cap to him when I was in London. That is James II himself. Very few surviving statues of James. But that is on Trafalgar Square outside the National Portrait Gallery. Looking down at, or up, at Nelson. I'm sure he would have been quite happy. He was a very good English Navy man, James II. There you go. That's it. Thank you. Thank you you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.